A school with no year levels and no compulsory English. Really? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. You're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. And we're always keen to hear what you think. Send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. Peter Hutton doesn't just talk about education revolution, he makes it happen. As principal of Templestowe College in Victoria, he's introduced innovations that some would either welcome or strongly reject. Take, for example, the fact that as of 2015, the school does not organise its students into year levels. Students can have phones in class, and they can take more or less than six years to complete their secondary studies. Now, in its sixth year of transformation, Templestowe College has gone from being a basket case on the verge of closing to a thriving school where they have to turn away new student enrolments and even applications from teachers desperate to get in. Those lucky enough to get a place are willing to travel long distances for the privilege of being enrolled at TC. It begs the question, why aren't all schools like this, or at least more like this? And why does TC seem so radical and unusual? I caught up with Peter at the Improving Initial Teacher Education Conference in Melbourne in April 2016 to find out more about this amazing story. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Most welcome, Colin. I wanted to get straight into this innovative model that you've got, and I want to try to avoid asking questions that people have perhaps already asked you. Yeah, certainly. Think that might be difficult, mm-hmm. uh, given the amount of media coverage that you've had. But let's let's launch straight in and suggest that uh, there's a principal or a bunch of teachers or a, a board somewhere that has caught your story and thought, this is what we need. Mm-hmm. We need to go here. Now, buy-in is a very important thing for anything to work, and. Presumably, this transition didn't just happen overnight. Uh, I'm assuming that. Mm. Now, if I was a principal listening to your story, what, what are the first steps? I guess the first thing that I'd encourage is that, uh, that principal to get in touch with us directly because whilst they could certainly model their, uh, their plan and their progression uh, based on what we've done, uh, I think that the the person could potentially avoid a lot of the pitfalls that that we experienced and we we trialled a lot of things, some of which worked, some of which didn't work Uh, and I think making contact so that they could have the benefit of our uh, our experience would be be the first first step in that process. I wanted to ask you specifically about that because there would have been some significant roadblocks. Uh, just, just to give our listeners a, a, a very brief overview, correct mm. me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. so this is my interpretation of it, you, as of 2015 you don't have year levels anymore. That's correct. Now, I can already hear people panicking. No, no year levels. Yep. What do you mean? I don't have year nine anymore? Wow. That's, that's so, correct. So, so no year levels, but you've got entrance and graduates. Correct. And that idea I love, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, just, I, I like the sound of that. Mm. And I particularly like the way your website says, those amongst us who plan to finish... Mm. in a particular year we call graduates. Mm. And immediately I can sense that students have an ownership of when they finish, which is an interesting idea. But coming back to these specific roadblocks, presum- uh, let me start with this. Presumably the teachers didn't see this coming. Uh, I think they did because the, the school was on its knees and I think uh, in, in many cases 
extreme innovation happens when something when you have nothing to lose when your back's up against the wall uh, you know that we were down to 286 local students and 23 year sevens so we basically had 12 months to turn the school around mm -hmm. or otherwise it would have been closed um, so yes the staff knew that it was basically an all or nothing game and they had to buy into it otherwise they'd be looking for a job somewhere else so <laughs> okay. well that's, that's a fairly strong motivation that's a good motivator for change so anything else that was uh, that, that you noticed right up front, as in, you, I mean, you say, right, we're going to do this, there would have been a roadblock that came back to you really quickly. What was, what was that? Uh, there, there weren't as many as, as people might imagine because, to be honest, those people with the get-up-and-go had got up and gone largely in terms of our student population. So um, we had a core of really committed parents and students, but it was a very small core. Um, and really uh, all the changes that we put forward, there was virtually no opposition uh, to what we were putting forwards. And from the departmental point of view, because we are a state, uh, a state school, um, my view is that uh, people higher up the, uh, the hierarchy pretty much didn't want anything to do with us because nobody wanted to be associated with something that was hurtling towards the ground at a rapid rate. <laughs> so, you know, nobody wants to be associated with the basket case. So we didn't actually see too many people from the department for many years. And that was how we were able to, to grow um, without any constraints. So that's quite ironic, really, because being a department school, mm. the first thing that people would think of is regulation yeah. and control. Yeah. But you've you've experienced the reverse of that. Absolutely. Look, I'm one of relatively few people who have been a principal in both the independent system as well as the state system, and I've actually felt greater, far, far greater freedom uh, intellectually and, and in, in practical terms uh, than I experienced when I was principal in, and assistant principal in the independent system because in the independent schools you're effectively controlled by a board of, of yes. uh, often parents who are basing their decisions on their own previous educational experience. Yeah. Now that makes for quite a conservative um, uh, governance structure, whereas in the department, uh, because everything that we do is largely based on you know good best practice and, and research, uh, they were very keen to to support us. And I have to say that I've had nothing but support uh, from people all the way up to the the secretary and deputy secretary. And whenever, uh, because of some of the moves that we have, like abandonment of year levels, even English is now no longer a compulsory subject. Well, um, what, what, what? Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> You've got to remember, uh, I come from New South Wales. That's, that's right. You just send a shockwave across the desk here. So, <laughs> so that, uh, there was an article that appeared in The Age which, which explained that, you know, that English was no longer a compulsory subject, and that was on the, in the Sunday Age. On the Monday, we had a call from the VRQA, which is the, uh, the governing body that looks at regulation, saying, please explain. And uh, the government, or the, the education department, actually sent out somebody to support us in responding to their concerns, which we were able to do. So I would have to say that, um, you know, that they're, I, I would say that they're proud of what we've achieved and that, and that that has been able to be achieved within a state school. And they're currently working with us, looking at how we can assist other schools who might be um, in difficult situations. Uh, to take on board uh, these changes because one of the biggest roadblocks to true innovation is that 
a lot of the schools are doing okay. Mm. They're, they're, they're going okay. And so when somebody proposes the sort of radical changes that, that we're putting forward, um, you know, uh, staff and students and parents rightly say, well, we're not that bad. Yeah, do I have um, to do yeah, this? Yeah, why, why, why would we do that? You know, we, we fit within the norm and the median. So, uh, you know, so... Um, in, in fact, I think that we're p- likely to get the most traction in schools that have in some way lost the confidence of their community, and I guarantee, I, that, and that's a guarantee that we can restore that faith uh, in education because traditional education, a model where education is done to students and they're not actually actively involved in those decisions, that's what's seen students disengage and families lose trust in the education system because it's irrelevant. They know it's irrelevant. Mm. Okay, All we're doing is actually calling them on it and saying the majority of what you learn in school is irrelevant to your future. <laughs> well, we hear the students say it all the time. Yep, and they're right. Now, let's, let's think about our listeners from a broader perspective, mm. and I, I want to try and draw them in because some, some people might be thinking, this all sounds great, but I feel really controlled and hemmed in, like you were suggesting mm. earlier. Mm. To be fair, if you took a helicopter view and zoomed out, could you look at yourself and say... I've been lucky. Uh, I've been lucky in life. I have a, a great family, and uh, well, I mean, it's it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a, a, a com- good upbringing. Look, it's a completely unusual situation when you consider it to the norm. Did you? Th- I mean, and now you're telling me that there haven't been as many roadblocks as you would expect. I, I, th- I think the I think the limitations that we often experience, and this is true not only of our particular circumstance but life in general, we often put our own limitations on things. You know, we, we think, oh, people would never allow us to do that. I can't do that. I was doing a presentation in New South Wales uh, recently and I was talking about, you know, the things that we were doing at, at Templestowe and there were a couple of people sort of rolling their eyes and, and, you know, somebody put up their hand and said, well, we'd never be allowed to do this in New South Wales. And one of the most senior... Uh, people in the department from New South Wales literally jumped from the floor, came up, grabbed the microphone and said, you can do this. We want you to do this. Wow. This is the very sort of innovation that we're talking about. So I'm kind of struggling with that because I've been in New South Wales in education for, well, since 1999, mm, and mm. I haven't heard that. And New South Wales is always, in my view, sorry, New South Wales, but they've always been pretty much the laggards in, in, you know, in terms of innovation, etc. <laughs> let, let, let me just say, we're, we're in Melbourne now, so cool. there's a bit of a Melbourne, that's New right. South Wales thing happening, mm. isn't there? But that's but, OK. We're OK with that. But I, I recently was asked to, to go up uh, and present in, in, in New South Wales, and there's, a, there's a, a, a significant new push for innovation. They've actually com- contributed a, a significant amount of funding to it. Um, there's a, a new video that's uh, been released called The Case for Change, which, to be honest, if I'd made the video myself, I couldn't have uh, spruiked the, the need for change better. Mm. Um, and uh, and that we're in ongoing dialogue with some people in the New South Wales Education Department as to how we might contribute to that debate. And uh, it seems to me that New South Wales have really grabbed the lead on this. And, I, and I've alerted... <laughs> Uh, some of my colleagues in Victoria to the fact that they've gone from being uh, uh, quite disparaging of some of the things that we're doing, they've leapfrogged over into being some of, you know, I would argue, almost the leaders uh, in Australia now. Can I talk to you about a, a comment you made on the, the drum program on the mm. ABC where 
uh, you were interviewed about your school and mm. you made a comment about false neuroscience. Yeah. Now, you didn't have a lot of time to explain that. Mm. And I would suspect that many people aren't really that au fait with neuroscience anyway. But, yeah. but when, then when you say a false neuroscience, and then you said something along the lines of the fact that there's a belief that core education mm. needs to happen before 25 and then it's all too late. Can you talk us yeah. through that? So uh, my understanding, and I've had this confirmed by, by neuroscientists and, and psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, up until comparatively recently, there was a, a view that the brain continued to develop up until approximately the age of, of 25. Mm -hmm. and, and from there, it was a slow decline to drool and gruel, as I say. Um, and... Uh, it was based around some, some evidence that uh, a lot of mathematicians' best work was produced pre-25, even though they went on to become university professors in mathematics. When, when people looked at the, at the key contribution that they'd made, it was generally around that, that younger period of time. And that was before fMRI and, um, and, and other sorts of brain imaging technologies that could look at a brain as it's actually functioning. And... Uh, when, when those techniques came about, then they were able to see uh, that the brain was actually quite, you know, the plasticity of the mind mm. and the fact that we could continue learning. And, of course, it, like it, it actually didn't make any sense anyway, if we're perfectly honest, because we know that you can teach an old dog new tricks. It yes. just takes a, a little bit more repetition. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, if I can teach my mother how to program her mobile phone or use her <laughs> mobile phone effectively, I think that's a case in point. So clearly you can continue to learn well into your you know, 80s and, and, and 90s, etc. And because we know that, I think it, it's certainly been a game changer because there was a perception amongst a lot of teachers out there, I think, that some kids had missed the boat and there was almost an acceptance that you could write those students off, that, yes. they, that they were somehow um, not... Uh, not the full quid, so to speak, and and they could only reach a certain point of academic attainment. So how has this understanding of neuroscience impacted your decision-making now and into the, into the mm. near-to-medium-term future for students who are much younger than 25? Yeah, I... I I guess it's an interesting question. I, I'm always really cautious when we talk neuroscientists, uh, neuroscience because when you talk to neuroscientists, they're often scathing of the claims that they hear being made about neuroscience because mm. they would be the first to acknowledge that they actually don't know a hell of a lot. You know, it's still an area that really does require a lot more research. It and is they, an emerging science. It is, it, very much so. And like any emerging science, we, we hold on to theories and then those theories are only there until somebody else comes up with a you know, a theory that better explains sure. our observations, etc. I think for me, and it's probably only occurred in the last two years, you know, possibly as we've, you know, we're now well and truly on our feet, we've got a good model, etc. that's enabled me to reflect on this. But I guess rather than classify students into groupings in any way, be they year levels or 15-year-olds or boys or girls or, you know, people with all sorts of, um, you know, other diversities, each brain is is actually quite unique. Yes. Uh, my my daughter is. I'm I'm dyslexic myself. My daughter, uh, one of my daughters, is 16 and she's dyslexic. Um, spelling is a major major issue for her. And yet, when she studies German language, her spelling is perfect. Well, that's interesting. Because my understanding is that second language, as opposed to being bilingual, is actually learnt in a in a separate area of the brain. It's actually a different neurological area is my understanding well so. that's that's fascinating because mm. i actually teach german i come from i come from a german household wow. yeah. and something i have found myself experiencing i, I haven't been teaching german for a long time mm. Mm. Uh, because it wasn't my 
uh, wasn't where I started in education. Mm -hmm. I've just found myself there. But what I find so interesting, and this is where I think the literacy argument becomes even more important, mm. is that I find that I can teach students so much more about English by teaching them German. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm actually teaching them the language by understanding their own language. Yeah. So what are you telling a second me? second language. Yeah, it doesn't mm. actually surprise me mm. that much. Mm. Uh, I'm, and particularly because German is such a rules-based language. And it doesn't have a lot of the crazy exceptions that English has. Yeah, not too many. Mm. <laughs> so when you do get an exception, you go, wait a second, that doesn't fit the rule. Yeah. <laughs> Things get really difficult. More from my discussion with Peter coming up. You can subscribe to this podcast for free and catch up with all of our interviews. Visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast or you can search for Learning Capacity in iTunes. Let's flip that over then. Conversely, if if you believe that there's a false notion of neuroscience mm. out there that, that is easy to talk about... and I think that's been well and truly disproven now, that false knowledge. It's just that it hasn't seeped through to the to the rest of the, the wider community. Like, the, the, you know, the, the idea of plasticity, I, I haven't heard any neuroscientist stand up and dispute that. So I think that it's, it's done and proven... Or not... Well, as close as it's possible to be proven at a scientific level, yeah. I think that the implications of that haven't yet filtered down to, to education. So flipping it around, how can we then make best use of emerging neuroscience in, or educational neuroscience, well, if I can use that tagline? I, I guess it's, it's symptomatic of, of where we're going as a community that we need, like I think what the neuroscience says is that there's no, there's no disorders of the mind, there are only different minds. Mm. You know, there, there literally are only different minds. I'm, I'm excusing, um, you know, acquired brain injury and, and those sorts of things, but but there are different minds, and, and what we need to do is, is acknowledge that they are different. They're not defective, they're just different. And what we need are accommodations and uh, different ways of perhaps teaching that... And, you know, in some cases it will be trial and error. Like, as humans, we love to classify because, you know, it, it, it um, reduces something that's incredibly complex down to something that we might have a vague notion of being able to understand. You know, if you look at the DSM-4 and, or now 5 and, you know, all the, uh, you know, the different disorders and, yes. and those sorts of things, you know, I, I guess you could, if you extrapolated that out into the future, there'd be a DSM uh, million that ha that had every unique human brain in it, because you know we are all unique. And one of the best things you can do is is to teach metacognition, you know, which mm. is how you know literally how students learn, like learning about their own learning. Um, I think is is where the where the future holds. Um, if, if I might just talk, uh, sort of jumping back a little bit in terms of no year levels. There's, there's a lot of research, and this is, you know, um, I would say indisputable, that if you take off the top 10% of students, so the two or three out of a class of sort of 25 uh, to 30, and, and the, the lowest performing 10%, uh, there's a, approximately a five-year academic range in yes. a non-streamed class. Yep. So how then... Um, how then is it possible to, to think that all students need uh, six years of secondary school? If some are literally, you know, two and a half, three years, or four years ahead, and some are similar amount behind, why does it take all students the same cooking time for them to, to complete their secondary education? 
and I guess that's the frustration that I have. Surely some of them are smart enough to complete it in in four years, five years, yeah. and and some would benefit from from a you know a year thirteen and perhaps fourteen, and they might actually still reach those milestones. Mm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that actually because there is. There is research coming out. In mm. fact, I, I interviewed just yesterday over at Grattan Institute one mm. of the researchers who just recently re, uh, released a report called Widening Gaps mm. in that plant. I don't know whether you've, whether you've come no. across it just yet. But he makes the same claim. Um, if you do take the top 10% and the bottom 10%, mm. there, there can be, a, according to his research based on NAPLAN mm. data, the figure is closer to seven years. Yeah. And that would be seven whole years, I'm assuming, rather than after you take the outliers of the top ten. Yes, and yeah, that's 10. right. So, yeah. so you're looking at a, a at a seven year spread, and, mm. and my comment straight back was, well, that's longer than high school. Mm. Mm. So, really, we do actually need to be doing something about it, and that's exactly mm. what you're trying to do. So, I guess, I guess when we start to understand the uniqueness of brains, mm. coming back to the neuroscience mm. now, if I may, the the imperative then is for us to actually take this research and, and actually do something about it, which mm. is, I guess, why I asked you right at the beginning, surely there must have been some roadblocks, and, and I'm thinking, wow, now that you've told me that there's actually more freedom, mm. well, why aren't we doing something about this? I, I literally believe it's because we're just... We, we think that there are roadblocks. We th you know, I was always waiting. Every time we uh, re released a new initiative, I was sort of, you know, cowering, waiting for the slap to come from above to, you know, tell me to pull my head in and stop doing what I was doing, and it just never came. And, and you know, you only have to experience that so many times before you become more bold and you, you keep reaching, waiting, you know, how, you how broad is this? And, and it's never come. I've only been given uh, positive affirmation. Uh, for the innovations that we've come up with. I like this theme that's come out here about taking a scientific view of this. Mm. You're five, five years down the track now, roughly? Yes, yeah, six, six, really. Six, yeah. six years? Mm. Thinking scientifically, people love to look at numbers, mm. and particularly when it comes to things like NAPLAN gain scores, mm. which is why the report coming out from Grattan was so interesting, because they talk about equivalent years of progress yeah. rather than just a number. Mm. I'm curious, are you collecting any sort of qualitative data out of this? Uh, I've, I've got to say that, that we're not. Um, I've, I would really... I do not want to be flooded with PhD applications, thank you. Um, <laughs> but but I, what I would like... One, one school does not a study make. Um, what we need to do... All, all I would, the claim that I would make is we've discovered something that we think might be the future of education. And I'm not only talking in Victoria, I'm not only talking in Australia empowering students to take control of their own learning is the future of education. And the difficulty that we have is trying to get somebody, be it the Department of Education in Victoria or New South Wales or Tasmania or whoever it might be, to go, you know what, this is promising enough to trial it in 10 schools. Mm. And I think that would give us the sort of robust data that was independent of, you know, the nature of the leader or the nature of the, you know, school environment or the socio-economic background of the kids or any of that sort of thing. It, it gives us the sort of um, sample size that that would then go, you know, what this is looking promising. Let's do it on a, you know, on a large scale and mm. see what the data is. Well, thinking about large scale, then you were talking about inundations from PhD applications. Mm. I can understand the the hesitancy there. We, we get a lot of them. Daily. I'm, I'm sure you do. But mm. let me ask you this question then. Mm. Do you get inundated every day by teachers wanting to work for you? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. 
you know, we get lots of applications from, and some of them are incredibly heartfelt stories of, um, you know, people feeling like they've been teaching for the last 10 years with a, with a, a foot on the back of their neck, um, you know, them wanting to trial new and innovative things, yeah. but, you know, the administration of the school basically not allowing them to do that. So we get a lot of people, even people who have left the profession, you know, dis, uh, disenfranchised and, and uh, disillusioned, you know, who have come across our story and want to come back. They want to come back? Yeah, absolutely. See, this is like, you know, the, the listeners wouldn't know, but we're actually at a conference at the moment talking about um, pre-service teacher education. Our problem is not pre-service education. Like, currently only one in ten people who, start a te- who apply and start a teaching degree are still in the profession five years later. Only five years later, we've yeah. lost 90 One in ten. So half of them don't even complete their teacher training. But by that stage, it's only... Of those that actually start, it's what my understanding is it's one in five who are still there five years later. Now, why is that? It's not because it's too hard. A lot of those people are leaving because they're disillusioned. They've gone into education wanting to help and make a positive difference. And they've gone into schools... Um, you know, sometimes because that was the only job that they could take, and and they're seen to be they're they're not helping kids. They're actually doing the opposite. They're often damaging students, and so they leave because they're disillusioned. They're, it, it's quite clear. You know, we 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 look at our PISA data because it seems like the sort of simplistic thing that politicians can yeah. can sort of you know superficially sure. gaze at and get an idea of where we're going. Nobody can show me the research that says that a declining PISA result leads to financial ruin or economic disadvantage. Like America, one of the poorest performing sort of, you know, PISA nations, and yet they still continue to be an economic powerhouse. And and if you look at some of those nations, um, particularly uh, some of those from the Asian regions who who are, you know, leapfrogging and jumping to the top of PISA, when you look at the um, the data around the, the students' quality of life, it's falling through the floor. Because they're because under the pump. Because they're so under the pump. The level of competition is just insane. Yeah. And there's not necessarily a positive link between doing well in PISA and doing well in life. We need students to leave education actually having had a really positive experience where they, where they look back on their time at school and they go, you know what, that was pretty good. And when I want to learn something, I'm actually good at it. And I don't mean just the top performing students. I'm talking about the student that has the learning disability but has learned that when I apply myself, I'm really good at practical things or I'm really good at talking with people or nurturing and nursing people, etc. We need every student... You know, Australia's population is, I think, 26 million. You know, and yet... And, and um, you know, I went to India recently and had a look at their, their population. Half of their population's under the age of 25 and they've got 1.3 billion people. Yeah. We do not have the luxury in this country with the size of population that we do to have any student fi- leaving education feeling like a failure. Yeah. Because if that happens, they will be content... Like, not only the, the personal impact of leaving feeling like a a human failure somebody who's not worthy of going on but they will be a continual drain on the social welfare of the the country they'll uh, have worse medical outcomes and the the associated costs of that and end up potentially um, you know in the judicial system and that sort of thing it's it's shameful yeah and what you're saying rings true with uh, someone else whom you've mentioned Mm. um, Sir Ken Robinson Mm. in terms of the fact uh, Ken Ken Robinson has said that what we're experiencing is a process of academic inflation. Yep, absolutely. And what I'm hearing from you is that you're seeing that in this intense competition. Mm. And 
we really should be concerned about how, how students are progressing, how they're learning, and what sort of a positive experience they can have from their schooling. So let, I know that time's getting away, so mm. let, me just, let me finish with this one. You don't want PhD applications. You're turning teacher applications away because obviously not mm. everyone can work at Templestowe College. And student applications. And so students. We, have, we have three students applying for every position that we have. Okay, so everyone wants in. Mm -hmm. let's, let's focus, because the conference here today is about improving teacher education, let's imagine that there are thousands of teachers listening, and there will be. Mm -hmm. What does a typical TC teacher look like? How, if they can't work with you, how can they mould themselves around this idea and take it with them somewhere else? Look, the, the real difficulty is, like, I want teachers to make a difference in their classroom by, by empowering their students to have more of a say in their, in their education. But the real people that we need to come on board are other principals, OK? Like, the reality is a teacher can, can do their best to implement student empowerment within their classroom, and I applaud that. But if, if we're actually going to make the big game-changer, OK, we actually need principals to come on board because without their support and their endorsement, uh, really, you're fighting an uphill battle. So my message is, you know, to the teachers out there, uh, encourage, force, cajole your principal into making contact with us, and we would love to work with whole schools, whole systems, in turning them around. Because, you know, it, it's not as if it's in doubt that our current education system is broken. You know, it, it serves about a third of students, one third do average, and one third it's a complete failure yeah. for. That paradigm has to change, and yeah. we feel that we've got a solution to it. Peter, it's been an absolute inspiration. Thanks so much for your time. Most welcome. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about the Templestowe College story, then please visit the website. That's templestowec.vic.edu.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.